Um, this morning I want to speak to you on the subject of the love of Christ. Um, and I, I've been talking a lot, if you were here Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday and some different topics uh, about the idea, but I've talked a lot about this idea of surrender. And, and surrender is central to our experience of all that, can, that God intends for us to receive in this life. And um, uh, my, my prayer, in my, my heart's desire is that I, I want to experience everything that God has for me. And I hope that's your heart to do. But we'll never come to the place where we experience all that God intends for us until we're willing to surrender or yield ourselves to his indwelling life. I, I think if, if uh, many of us were honest with ourselves, we'd have to say that we're not seeking first the kingdom of God. He is not first in our lives. Um, it's a different message, but a, a different thought I, I, I share with some friends. I go, is Jesus preeminent in your life or only prominent? You know, and the reality is, is I think that Jesus is prominent in many of our lives, but not preeminent. He's not first. Uh, when we experience the overwhelming love of God, it compels us to a life of surrender to his will and to his purpose. So let's begin this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, and let's look at verse number 14 and 15, and we'll look at some other scriptures along the way. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Father, I thank you for your wonderful love to us. And, and I pray that this morning you would just, by a, a mighty working of your spirit, overwhelm us with your love. That your love might constrain, might compel might drive us, and Lord, that we would be a people who would respond to your incredible, abundant love with a life of surrender. Lord, I pray that you'd have complete liberty to speak through your servant into the hearts of your beloved, and Lord, that you would shake us and challenge us and, and transform our experience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He starts off and he says, for the love of Christ constrains. We don't really use that word so much, but another way of saying it is compels it. It drives us. Now, I think that if I were writing the passage, that I would have said, well, my love for Christ compels me. Because in our minds, sometimes we think, I do these things because of my love for God. But that could be the problem. Paul didn't do what he did because of his love for Jesus. But because of Jesus' love for him. Do you see the difference? I, I, see, I think if we get it man-centered, then we're going to preach something like, if you 
just love Jesus, then you would. If you love Jesus, then you would witness more. And if you love Jesus, you would serve more. And if you just love Jesus, then you would give more. And if you just... And you see, the, the, the problem with this message is that it's centered in me and you. It's man-centered. But Paul starts this off in a very different way. And he says, the love of Christ compels me. So Paul is not the initiator, but Paul is the one who responds to God, who's the initiator. You see, the gospel is good news because it's a relationship initiated by God where we are the ones who respond. God comes to us in his great love, and we respond to that great love. You see, um, I've seen people who genuinely love Jesus, who give their all, and they kind of burn out in the Christian journey or their Christian service because they have exhausted themselves of everything they have. But I see a whole lot more people who rust out than burn out. Because they never thought of anything or anyone beyond themselves. But you see, the reality is that the burnout and the rust out are both short of what God desires to do in our lives. The love of Christ should be is, in reality, the starting point for everything we do in life. So I hope you'll track with me. It isn't our love for him, but his love for us that compels us. Uh, if I'm living, and I, I, I'm going back to this because I see it pivotal, and you'll, you'll, we can talk about it afterwards if you have questions, but... If we're living from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In the Garden of Eden, there were those two trees that he pointed out. And he told, he told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you may freely eat from the tree of life. Why? Because man was created to live in a relationship of complete dependence with God, who is his life. And the tempter comes and says, hey, maybe God's holding out on you here. You could be like God, knowing good and evil. And every time I think of that, I think, man, now, isn't that just amazing how deceiving the enemy is? He enticed Eve to think that God was withholding something. And God was withholding something. Evil. Do you see what he, he said? He said, God's holding out on you. Because up to that point, all Eve and Adam had ever experienced was the good of God. And so you and I were created just to know good. But we all know, right? Because we live in a, in a fallen world, a broken world. We all know and experience heartache and sickness and evil that we were never designed. We were designed, created for a perfect environment. And we struggle through this because that bad 
choice. But see, there's still this temptation for us to go through life thinking it all comes back to me that I could be like God, that I could know good and evil and always trying to decide what's good, what's evil, always making judgments instead of living from the life of God, living from that tree of life. You see, he wants me to come to the place where I am overwhelmed by his love. That the starting point isn't my love and my commitment, but the starting point is God's love for me and God's love for you. The starting point isn't you. The starting point is God, the creator. See, do you see how it weighs on you if, if it, the starting point is you? Like some days you wake up and you feel like, good. And then other days you wake up and you feel not so good. You ever wake up in a bad mood? You guys are looking at me like, no, but I do. You know, it's kind of funny, but like, I'm, you know, I remember just in the last couple of weeks, I was dreaming some kind of crazy stuff. Too much Mexican food late at night or something. I don't know what was going on. But I, I love Mexican food, but, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, it can, it can produce some good dreams. So, you know, I was dreaming and, and I was going through it in my mind. And I can't even remember what the dreams are when you wake up. You know, you can remember you were dreaming and it was all bad stuff, argument. And I woke up and I just felt like grumpy. My wife looked at me, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm grumpy. She's like, well, why? I, I don't know. I was having some weird dreams last night. Now, if everything revolves around me, like one day it might be good, one day it might be bad. Right? One day you might feel good, one day you might feel a lot of love for God, one day you might not feel a lot of love for God. But here's the point I want you to get to. It's not your love for God that's the starting point. It's God's love for you. The love of Christ constrain it. Now, we could come at it from a different angle. And if we wanted to kind of guilt trip people, then we would start off with their love. They would be the starting point. And you're saying, and I could come up and I'd spend 30 minutes beating you up about how come you don't love God enough. But the reality, I think, is that, that we start too much with us and forget that the starting point, the source of all life is God himself. And it's his incredible love for us that should shake us and transform us, should overwhelm us and become the driving force for all that we do in life. His love, not our love, his love. You see, if you're eating from the wrong tree, the starting point is you and your service, and it hangs on your love and your commitment. We've been called to live from the tree of life, and so it is me finding the fuel of life, if you will, in his life. It all begins in his love, and he's the initiator, and I'm simply responding to him, allowing him to do what he desires to do in and through us. Knowing Christ's love changes our focus. If your focus is your circumstances, you can get all kinds of crazy ideas going on. Because your circumstances fluctuate. But what he wants you to come to is to establish a new foundation in your life where the foundation is that God is love. 
When God described himself for us, how did he do it? Now, there are many attributes to God, right? We understand that God's just and he's holy and these are, these are all true. But when God defined himself for you, how did he define himself for you? That he's love. And that all of the other attributes of God flow from the fact that he's love. He's a just God because he's a loving God. He's a holy God because he's a loving God. They're not in somehow in conflict. And the saying is like, I want you to be overwhelmed by this love that I have for you. If you remember, uh, I don't remember, when did I speak on Romans 12 and knowing the will? I think it was Friday night. We, 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 if you were here on Friday night, what we learned was, was that the, the experience of transformation comes from renewing our minds. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, friends, what do we have to do to experience the transforming power of God in us? We have to remind ourselves what's true. And here's the good news. What's true of you is that he loves you. And in Christ, he is giving you everything you will ever need. He loves you. He's committed to you. He's committed to your welfare. I was thinking about it the other day, and it's a whole different series of messages. But in Hebrews, when he talks about chastising, is anybody like up for that? But do you realize that God's motive and even our chastisement is our good? That even the discipline of God that comes into our lives, his training is for our good. Did you ever have, did you guys ever play sports, have a coach? Right? I played, when, in high school, uh, I played water polo. And, and I would swim in the off-season to stay in shape, but I, I played water polo. And I had this one coach one time, I, I was sure, even as an unbeliever, that he was the manifestation of the Antichrist. <laughs> right? Like, all he wanted to do was to make us suffer, and the more we suffered, the more he smiled. I'm not sure it's true, but that's how I remember it. Right, And so what was he doing? And he would make us, at 7 o'clock in the morning, before school started, he would, we, we, he would stand there, we would jump in the pool, we'd have to swim a mile without stopping. We'd get out, we'd go to school, we'd come back, we'd swim a mile worth of sprints. 50-yard sprints, back and forth, back and forth. And then we had practice. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? He's trying to kill me. You know, now, what was he really trying to do? He was trying to train me. He was trying to put my body through all of the tests so that at the end of the season when we were trying to do it, that we would have the physical training. His motive was really my good. Giving him the benefit of the doubt. Now here's the thing. If a human coach whose only motive is the glory of human victory would do that, why would God allow all the difficulties to come into our lives? But see, friends, this is what I want you to understand. And even in the trials, even in the tribulations, even in the heartaches that you go through in life, God is promising to use these things for your 
good. Why? Because he is a God who is love. And that love, when it gets into your thinking and changes, transforms your way of living, will motivate you to do and to surrender and to be yielded to him like no guilt trip could ever work. Because the thing with guilt is it only works as long as the... It's all temporary, right? It's just temporary. But he's saying, listen, the love of Christ transforms... You see, it's when we are overwhelmed by his unending love for us that, that we are compelled to allow him perfect liberty to live and to manifest or express his life through us. When we are overwhelmed with love for him, our focus changes from self to him. It was love that compelled Paul to a sacrificial worship. And it will be love that compels you that motivates you and drives you. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 35. And then let's just for time look at verse 38 and 39. Verse 35, he he describes the love of Christ for the church of Rome. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So there you are, right? And you're going through life. And you say, okay, brother Tim, I accept that God is love and Yeah, I sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But in your mind, you're going through life and you're thinking all kinds of things can separate you from that love. And so you quit walking in love because you think because of your own performance or your own circumstances, God loves you or doesn't love you. But that's not the basis of God's love. Your performance isn't the initiator. You see what I'm saying? Because you're thinking, well, if I do good and I have a good day, then God looks at me and he loves me. And if I have a bad day, then he looks at me and he's got this horrible frown. Then you would be the initiator and God would be the responder. Is that how you relate to God? You're the initiator. Your good performance causes God to respond to you. Or in your relationship, is God the initiator and you the responder? You see how we can subtly buy into this thing that we could be like God? And part of the lie in the Garden of Eden was that you could be like God means you could be the initiator. You could be the source. But one of the wonderful good news of the gospel is, is that you aren't the initiator. You're the responder. And God loves you out of his own sovereign will and purposes. Why does God love me? I don't know. Because you're his. I've often said, Lord, how could you love me? I mean, I mess up, I fail, I just stumble, and, you know, you must be frustrated and given up on me. But see, the wonderful thing about God, God never loved me for what I did for him. He loved me simply because I was his. And God loves you for no other reason than that you are his. Isn't it true? How many of you had kids? Okay, and if you haven't had kids, listen, maybe one day you will. But like when I remember when, when, when Ryan was born, and this picture always comes to me, my, our oldest son, Ryan, he was born, and to me, it was just like this, wow, how did I get this kid? Now, this is when he was little, right? 
And what do you do when the kids are little and you have your first one, it's just like overwhelming because you're not tired yet? But like the fourth kid, forget it. You're just like, somebody shoot me, put me out of my misery, you know. But the first one, you're just like excited and you're still young and you got energy. And and that kid, and you just, I remember holding him in my hand. I'd have his head in my hand and his little body draped along my arm. And I would coo at him and just make a fool of myself just loving him. And why did I love him? What could he do for me? Nothing good. (laughs) Am I right? Right? And so you go, oh, I just love you and daddy loves you. You know, you talk to him and you make funny noises. And then you wonder why it takes him two years to speak. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I just am bewildered. Right? If you just spoke regular English to him, they'd speak in nine months probably, you know? But they're confused because you're going, you know, and you're loving on them. And what do they do? Then, they, then you see it. Then they get that pressure look in their face. And the, the most horrible, wretched, smelling stuff comes from their body. That's how they reward you. Right? Or you get them and, and Vanessa would get them and they have them all fed and say, okay, now you hold them and, and, and I'd put them, I was, in fact, probably living in Roner Park, you know, and I'd be sitting there and I'd have to wear a suit and, and I'd have them hold them and I'd be like, then I'd go off and I'd ride the bus to work and I'd get to work and my secretary said, what's that white cottage cheese stuff on the back of your suit? How did he reward my love? But did I quit loving him? No, I didn't love him because he was somehow able to do something for me. I loved him because he was mine. And this is just the most incredible truth. If you would grasp it this morning and walk away with this, you'd have all you needed for a while. I mean, it would transform you. That God looks at you, friend. He loves you. And yes, sometimes you make a mess of things. But he loves you. Not for how you perform, but for who you are. You're his. And it will liberate you if you'll grasp this. It will liberate you. Romans eight thirty five says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So, you're thinking all these things can separate you, but the scripture comes to you and says, Okay, you think you can be separated from the love of God? What, what can separate you from? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Look at verse number 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, friends... Too many of us get going through life and we think it all kind of depends on us and how well we perform and we must think God must be horribly disappointed with me. You know, he's going to get me. He's going to... And, and friends, the scriptures just tells us that the thing about God is that he loves us. 
And he, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, has removed the possibility of anything separating you. For all who are in Christ, Christ is the assurance. Do you see it? So you say, why should I receive Christ? Why should I, why should I enter into him? Why should I be born again? Why not? Do, do, because some of you are thinking, well, why should... Because, man, to be in Christ is to come and to be in love, in a love relationship, with, and, and you're the responder to it. So if you're here this morning and you've come and you haven't entered into Christ, you haven't received Christ, you haven't put your trust in him, haven't confessed him with your mouth, believed in your heart, however you want to put it, he, I'm saying this morning, men, respond to what? His love for you. And enter into a relationship in which nothing, nothing can separate you from that love. Now he said, the love of Christ constraineth or compels us. Because we just, we judge thus that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now this is kind of the conclusion of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross. And why did he die on the cross? So that he could redeem us into himself. He took the punishment. Second Corinthians talks to us about he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He went there for each of his own. His death was a substitutionary death on behalf of all. He made the sacrifice for us to enter in. When we enter into Christ, everything that happened to him happens to us. So he's saying, listen, you become in union with him. And it's, is it mystical? Is it hard to understand? Absolutely. But he takes us and plants us into Christ so that what happens to Christ, that when Christ died, who died? Christ died and you died. In your spirit. He takes your spirit there. Why did he do that? So that he could plant his life within us. He doesn't call us to die you see, this is the problem with religion, is religion puts the emphasis on dying to you. And I hear people preaching, and we can discuss it, but I hear people say, you need to crucify yourself every day. Now, let me explain something to you. You can't crucify yourself. It's impossible. Have you ever thought about it? Okay, you get, the, you get the cross, you get your wooden cross out there, and you, get, you lay down on the cross, and you get a big old nail, and you put it down on your feet, and you get that hammer... And you, you see, some of you are closing your eyes already. What happens when you have a nail and a hammer and you close your eyes? Unlikely to hit the nail. Severe tissue damage, right? And it's, it's just say you could do it, but you can't. You know you can't, right? Because I'm already thinking of the pain that it would cause, and I'm already cringing, and, it have, and it's just figurative, and I'm, I don't even have a nail or a hammer. Do you ever do that? I do that. I start, someone starts telling a story about how they fell, and I'm like, oh. I start feeling the pain. You get that nail, and you go, boom. Maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. Boom. I don't think so, but maybe. <laughs> do you see why you can't crucify yourself? Crucifixion has to be done to you. Now, I do know that Paul says 
that I die daily. But if you'll go back to the context of that passage, you'll look that he talks about all the things that he was experiencing in, in life. He's talking about the resurrection of the day. He says, listen, I'm in fear of literal physical death every day of my life. And if there's no resurrection, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. But what he does emphasize is that we died in him. He takes us to the cross so that in him we die. We appropriate that. But we don't try and kill ourselves. We enter into it so that we die to who we were. So Colossians 3.3 says, for you are dead. You are dead. He's saying this is a fact that you died in Christ. And he says, now your life is hid with Christ in God. So I'm not sure I grasp it all. I'm just saying like, you take your life. And you see Jesus' life, and he says that when you entered into faith in him, when you believed on him, that he mystically impacts you, imparts your, his life into you and you into him, so that you are secure. You say, how can God love me? Because you died, and he put his life in you. Romans 6, uh, verse 3 and 4. He says, know you not that as many of us as were baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed or baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So why did he take us to the cross? So that he could make us suitable vessels for his life to dwell. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you a brand new life, my own life in you. So back in Corinthians, he says, and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. So you see, the love of Christ constraineth us. He, we enter into his death and we are free now from living a selfish, self-centered life. You go and you look at the unbelieving world and you go, oh man, those people, they live so selfish, so self-centered just for themselves. Well, duh. Why would you expect anything different? That's all they have is their life. But what he's saying is, you who have entered into Christ, you've been raised to newness of life. You've been given the life of God to live a whole different way. So you're no longer living for yourself. You're living now from the very life of God. So that you should henceforth not live unto yourself. So what's the problem? Why are we so selfish and self-centered? Because we forget about the love of God. Why did he die for us? He died for us so that he might live in us. He died and caused us to die in him so that we should be free from the self-life, the self-sufficient life, trying to make life work for ourselves and our own energy. We could not through the flesh deliver ourselves from the flesh, the flesh, the self-life. There's no way the flesh can manage itself, but it cannot kill itself. It cannot deliver itself. His, his love compels us to leave our self-interest behind and live from the tree of life. You see, when you, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to entice you to, friends, is a life of selfless sacrifice because it's for your good. Now, how are we going to come to that place? When we come to the understanding of how much God has loved. Have you ever been loved before? Now, come on, some of you need to respond to this. Especially you husbands. But I'm going to ask a question. Have you husbands experienced what it is to be loved? And you go, 
unless you're like more than arms, unless you want to have a very quiet lunch. <laughs> right? And, 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 and in our lives, when, when we're loved, what do we, what do we want to do? How do? When you're just overwhelmed that someone loves you, what do you want to do? Love them. Right? When we feel someone's rejecting us, what do we do? Right? You anticipate someone's rejecting you and you reject them to protect yourself. But what he's saying is, listen, you need to come to a place where you recognize, man, this love that God has for you is overwhelming. And what do you desire to do when you're loved by God is to respond. So when we're, when we're, in and experiencing the love that Christ has for us, our heart's desire is no longer centered. We've been liberated from living a selfish and self-centered life to live unto him. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me. And gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 sums up the good news of the gospel and our entering into Christ. And he says, now I am crucified with Christ. And yet I live. But not me. But Christ lives in me. Do you see this, friend? When you receive Christ, he comes to live in you so that he is your life. He is the source of all that you do. And this love that nothing can separate you from is in you. And he's saying, now will you let me live through you? Why? Because he, he what? He loved me and gave himself for me. It was the love of Christ that compelled Paul. And it was the love of Christ that took Paul to the cross. It was the love of Christ that sanctified him and set him apart and made him the dwelling place of his spirit. And this is what makes the gospel good news is that God is the initiator and we are the responders. The gospel is about you and I going to the cross with Jesus that we might be set free from the self-life and allow him to live through us. Then Colossians chapter 1 verse 29 says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We shared this verse before, but I thought it was good. So what happens? You see, friend? You see, God doesn't like forgive you of your sins. What does he do? He, he doesn't just cover your sins. He forgives you of your sins, but he takes your sins away. Why? So that he has liberty. Do you remember what, what, what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away your sin. Isn't that good news? Now, I got to tell you that um, God is much different than how we work. Now, I grew up in a very Catholic, traditional Catholic, strict Catholic home, went to parochial schools. And my mother the, was the, the queen of guilt. And, and she could remember everything. And she was a school teacher. So she, two strikes. And, and you know, what was the fear of your mom? Your mom would, would it would be like, it was, didn't say it like this, but this is how I interpreted it. So 
there's a small chance that I could be wrong. But she would interpret me, it would be like, don't embarrass me again. Do you ever, anyone ever feel like that? Because you just kind of went, oh, no, if I blow it again, mom's going to be like, and I'll, she'd have that disappointing look on her face, and, you know, and, and she could remember, like, you know, when you were four. <laughs> Not really, but it felt like that, right? And she could remember all the things, and it was heavy, and you just always felt that burden, like, if I just messed up one more time, the, 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 the relationship would be severed forever. It never was, but that's how it felt. But here's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't keep a list, right? Okay, back in 1989, you remember? I remember. And back in, also in 89, let's just keep moving, 1990, and you go through, and he's got a record. What, what, what happens to us? We start to live under this huge weight, and we can't go forward because we're carrying the guilt and the weight of all of our failures. So why is it important that we understand that Jesus takes away our sins and floods us with his love so that we can live as a people who have been set free, liberated unto a life for him? And it's, he stri- we strive according to his working, which works in us mightily. But then he says this, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So he's saying to us, listen, the love of Christ constraineth us. He took us and entered us into his death that we would no longer live for ourselves, but unto him which died for us and rose again. So, friends, it's no longer about us, so it can be all about what he desires to do in us and through us. And this is where I want to bring you this morning. What's, what's driving you? <clears throat> Why do you do what you do? Why do you go where you go? Why do you give what you give? Guilt will only take you so far. And guilt will leave you burned out. Some of you have burned out. More of you have rusted out. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying it the way it is, right? But God wants neither burnout or rust out. Do you realize that he loves you? And allow yourself to be overwhelmed by that love. When you see the cross, what do you see? Do you see an empty cross where he left all of your sin behind? Do you see God who loves you? He's saying, listen, would you let that love overwhelm you? Would you let it affect all that you are and become the driving force for all that you do? You see, I'm convinced that a lot of people in the American life, they become consumers, materialistic consumers, 
because they're trying to find fulfillment in the things that they have. And it never satisfies. Right? We have in America now more than any other generation. And we're complaining because times are tough and times are tough. Compared to five years ago. But could you, do you want to compare the lifestyle that we have now to 50 years ago? And we're living good. And you can go almost anywhere in the world. And even in these difficult times, we're living far better. See, what I just want you to understand in that is not to feel guilty that we, we hear and we have these blessings, but to understand materialism will never satisfy. You see, God wants to liberate you from the life of self so that he might compel you to a life of selflessness. You've got to remember how much he loves you. Have you messed up? Sure. But here's the beautiful thing about God is he never loved you because of what you did for him. He loves you because you're his. And you need to come back to see yourself in the palm of God and he's cooing at you. And to look to the cross, not your own failures. And say, Lord, I want your love to be the driving force in my life. Why do we do what we do? Because of love. Why do we give selflessly and sacrificially? Because of his love. And let it be the force. It is Christ's love for us that is the motivation for all that we do. Friends, I would propose to you that God is allowing us to go through some difficult economic times to strip from us this reliance upon materialism and to come to the place where we realize how good we've got it as the beloved of God. And that as we focus on that love and allow it to transform us, that we will become a people more selfless in our service, in our giving. Our temptation is always to think, well, we need more people and we need more of this. Right here, this morning, we have everything we need to do everything that God intends to do through us. It's here. We must remember that we have died in him to all of this selfish way and live from him because we've been liberated. We've been planted, had planted within us the very life of God. Father, I pray that um, you would work in the hearts and lives of your people. Lord, I don't know who's here in what condition, and I just simply pray that your love would overwhelm each one. I pray that everyone in here would know you and your amazing love.
And let that love compel them and drive them to a selfless, sacrificial life. Now your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I I, I don't intend or want to embarrass any of you in any way, but I want to ask you to think. Friend, do you know for sure that you have the life of God in you, that you've been born again? That he has saved you from all of your sin and planted his life within you? Do you know for sure that if you died, that you'd spend eternity with him and that you have the life of God within you now? Because he loves you. And he went to that cross to take away your sin. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you have God's life in you, that you've been forgiven completely, that you've been born again, would you raise your hand and let me pray for you? Is there anyone like that? Say, Brother Tim, I'm not sure, but I want to know. Would you pray for me? Christians, saints of God, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you just allow God to overwhelm you again with his love? Would you confess with him that nothing can separate you from that love? And now would you let that love become the driving force in all that you do? to compel you to live no longer for self, but for him who calls you his beloved. And it's his life working mightily in you. Lord, as we think about this, I just pray that your spirit would move upon us in a powerful way to overwhelm us with this awesome love that you have for us. And let it drive us to a selfless life, a sacrificial life, that you'd move us and shake us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.